News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For years now, we've had our ideas of what was going on with money laundering in British Columbia, right? First, there were the anecdotal stories, the suspicions that led to the public inquiry. Now, of course, we've got the Cullen Commission into money laundering that's going on. And a lot of the testimony that we have heard just confirms what I think so many British Columbians were suspicious of all along, which is why yesterday's testimony at the commission is so stunning. It was one current and one former former executive with the BC Lottery Corporation that testified. And when you think about what we know versus what they said, it just, it makes you shake your head. Have a listen to this story from John Hua. It's become known as the Vancouver model. High rollers were loaned dirty money to be played and even lost in BC casinos. Upon repayment, often outside Canada, organized crime gets cash. That's now clean. To me, it's, it's either money laundering is converting uh, dirty money into an asset. and the casino, they could not do that. Terry Towns, who was once in charge of security and compliance at the BC Lottery Corporation for more than a decade, telling the Cullen Commission he doesn't believe casinos were used to clean criminal cash, even today. With the benefit of hindsight now, do, do, do you believe that British Columbia casinos were used to facilitate the laundering of proceeds of crime? No. Despite concerns from the gaming regulator that funds coming into casinos was proceeds of crime, BCLC focused on how a player stated they earned their money. You took the word for it. Yeah, more or less, I'd take the word for it. Figuring out who provided the high rollers with bags filled with suspicious cash was less of a concern. Oh, that wasn't considered at that time. During Town's tenure, the only time BCLC ordered cash be refused by casinos was if a player didn't have identification or if the cash looked like a prop from a crime movie. Um, cash had blood on it. Another one um, that I recall, the, the cash had been uh, burnt. How BCLC investigators saw suspicious stacks of $20 bills would become an issue for the man who took over for Towns in 2013. Brad Damaris told the Cullen Commission he looked at hiring outside the pool of mostly former police. Well, throughout their career, they dealt with uh, drug traffickers. And where there are drug traffickers, there is money. I felt that there was uh, uh, maybe a bit of confirmation bias. Commission counsel pointing out that many times BCLC's now chief operating officer provided other explanations for large amounts of suspicious cash flowing into BC casinos. Underground banks, cash businesses, even people smuggling Canadian currency into the country. The intent behind reviewing all of these potential sources was simply to understand what the landscape was. Like Towns, the man currently in charge of BCLC security and compliance was asked one key question. The patrons using these large quantities of $20 bills were at least could be facilitating the transfer of or laundering of proceeds of crime. We still don't clearly understand it. And without that understanding, despite concerns from the gaming regulator and even law enforcement, the BC Lottery Corporation would wait more than a decade to try and stop the flow of dirty cash coming into BC casinos. John Hua, Global News. Wow, wow, wow. I couldn't even actually believe what I was hearing in that testimony that you've got people who are in charge who to this day still don't think that there was money laundering going on. And the only thing that would raise their suspicions if there was blood on the cash that they were that people were bringing in to gamble with. 
That just shows you what we were up against in those years, right? Why it did seem like you know, Vancouver had become the money laundering capital of Canada, if not North America. There is more, I'm sure, stunning testimony to come in the Cullen Commission, and we will have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. 13 years now after a wonderful young woman was working one day and got executed brutally. Uh, and there's been no, no results at all. That is the father of BC realtor Lindsay Buziak. You probably remember this story. We've learned a new task force, including members of the FBI, are now looking into the evidence in his daughter's 2008 murder. This is a case that has just continued to draw questions, more questions than answers at this point. It was even featured on an episode of Dateline NBC uh, with no resolution. But joining us now to talk about where the investigation goes from here and why U.S. law enforcement may now be involved is uh, uh, the president of BCSI Investigation, Denny Gagnon. Denny, thanks for being back with us. Morning, Simi. Now, they've said that they've reopened this due to some technological advances. Uh, What could that mean? Uh, There's many things that could happen. First, they have to determine what was the exact motive, and that's going to give the direction of the investigation. You're talking about they've discovered something else, and that, that... Basically, now we have so much power in regards to our technology. It could be a DNA uh, profiling, you know, that they've been able to determine some DNA from reviewing the physical evidence they exhibit from the scene. Um, They could have discovered some more forensic evidence on the phone. I think the phone is a critical thing in this this, uh, event because there was, in fact, a burner phone used. And also she was using, I believe, a BlackBerry. So there could be some forensic analysis of the phone. The pinging of the location, the fact that I believe the suspect may have used BC ferries to get there. We're dealing with an island, so they're going to look at all that. And then, so basically, forensic computer analysis. So the technology is so advanced now in regards to looking at the electronic device that uh, that's possibly where they're going to be going. Right. And, how, you know, opening it now at this case, like w- they must have some new information, I would think, too, right? Like that's what they want to explore. Correct. And they may have gotten a source that has provided them some information. And obviously, they're going to disclose who the source is. It could be a criminal, you know, that's in prison and so on, that, that devolves some information. Um, it, it's unknown where it's coming from. But the fact that they were opening it is very interesting. And the involvement of the FBI tells me that they may be they're going to be using some of the technology they have and or the suspect may be located in the USA. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so many murder cases these days, Denny, they must all kind of hinge on those technological aspects of it, right? Is that where police, do you think, go right away? Yes. I mean, we can use that technology. I mean, once there is limitation, there is privacy limitation. Some of the uh, smartphone companies will not cooperate if the phone is protected by a password, for example. There is companies now that specialize in basically breaking into those phones. It's very expensive, but it, get, it can get done because you have to go to the sequences of the, of the passwords. But also you need, in some cases, search warrants to be able to access that information due to privacy. There's a huge amount of complexity. I do understand that the father has been very committed to this, and yes. kudos to him. But meanwhile, to keep the to keep the investigation going. But yes, to understand that you know this is a very very complex investigation. There is multiple things that are there is connection. There is associates. There is the 
you know, events in the past that may be connected. There is, but the motive is crucial, is why did someone, in fact, took this young lady's life? That's going to give a really good direction to where the investigation should go from now on. And that's, mm-hmm. that's key in my view. How significant is it that they've called into the FBI for help? Like you're talking a, a murder in Canada on Vancouver Island and they're getting help from the FBI? Probably because there's a connection to the the, the uh, suspect being located in the USA. I mean, there is jurisdiction issue. The, the FBI may have expertise that the RCMP and the uh, police department, the local policeman, doesn't have. That's possible. But in fact, if they are requesting um, the FBI, that could be also because the suspect may have a connection, may not be located in the US, but a connection to the US. Right. Let's talk about burner phones here, because you mentioned that might that you know might have been a thing in this case. It used to be that if you had a burner phone, that's it. You couldn't find out any information about it. That was the whole point of them. Has that changed? Yeah, it's, it's somewhat changed. I mean, it's still very difficult because you can go, you know, to your store and get a phone and basically provide a false name and so on and false information and, and basically, you know, bite uh, airtime. But meanwhile, in regards to in the fact that, you know, you can ping the phone and they were able to track the phone traveling from Vancouver, for example, to Vancouver Island, there is limited information that can be provided, but there is information that can be obtained. Also, we don't know at this point if this phone has been retrieved. I mean, you know, we don't know if, if, they, if they've been turned in. Some people discard their phone and they don't uh, clean them. So it's a possibility it was retrieved. I mean, we don't have that information at this point. And also we have to understand that when we're doing this kind of investigation, disclosure and releasing information to the public has to be protected, not to compromise the investigation. Right. But it just goes to show you, Denny, doesn't it, how much technology has changed since 2008? Technology has been a blessing. You know, it's really helping us in our investigation. It also makes it extremely difficult in some cases to to get to the bottom of it. So it's, it's you know, there is plus and there is minus in regards to using technology. And also, we're also dealing, for example, if you're using polygraph examination, there is limitation of admissibility in court. So you're dealing with all that. You've got the complexity of privacy and the complexity of admissibility. And also, if there is a criminal element attached, if, a big if, attached to this case, because obviously it was targeted, um, then uh, obviously people are not really, you know, want, don't want to come forward. I mean, they're scared and so on. They don't want to release that information. I mean, the fact that someone goes and shows a house and a couple shows up and so on, but, you know, there is witnesses that's out. I mean, we have a, they, they appear to have a visual of those people that were in the house that day. It was a very tight time frame. It was around five to seven minutes. So it's tight. So the timeline is really tight. They have a good, they have a good starting point, but You know, there is a huge amount of complexity when you're dealing with a cold case that's now 13 years old. So true. Well, Denny, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. That's Denny Gagnon. He's the president at BCSI Investigation, cybersecurity experts, uh, talking about the the Lindsay Buziak murder case. Now, she was murdered back in 2008. A realtor, Vancouver Island, remember she was showing a house, uh, was murdered in the house, and nobody knew why. Who she was showing the house to? How did this happen? It has been just a huge mystery. The Buziak family has lobbied hard to keep this case in the news. Uh, It's been profiled every everywhere, even on Dateline, as I mentioned. And now we hear from Saanich Police that they have uh, launched a new task force to look into the Lindsay Buziak murder, and they're even getting help from the FBI in the United States. But we don't have any more information about, you know, what it is they might be looking at. All they said was that there are some technological advancements that will help them look at some evidence. So we wait for the update on that. This is Mornings with Simi. 
a good look this morning on what your holiday season spending was like. And this is according to an RBC poll that is just out. And here's the thing. If you are still paying off that credit card from Christmas, don't feel bad. You are not alone on that. Turns out a lot of us spent more than we had expected to during the holiday season. And I guess what's so surprising about that is it holiday celebrations were so subdued and so much smaller, uh, but maybe we spent a little more to make ourselves feel better. Certainly sounds that way. So here are some of the numbers that they released. Canadian shoppers that they polled spent an average of $735 at Christmas in 2020. Uh, That's actually the highest ever since RBC started tracking this kind of data 10 years ago. So yeah, $735 was the average, okay? 25% went over budget. How much did they go over budget by? About $588 on average. Uh, That's not a little, that's a lot to go over budget, actually. It's a 28% increase. The year before, so Christmas 2019, people had gone over budget by about $459 on average. So which province showed the most restraint with overspending? Think about that for a second. If you had to pick a province, which one would it be that showed the most restraint when it came to going over budget? Well, guess what? Right here in BC, actually, BC residents showed the most restraint. People who broke the bank here only spent a few hundred dollars more than they had planned. Get this in Quebec. Many people there spent $1,000 more than they had actually budgeted. That province coming in at the top end of people who went over budget. BC coming in with only a couple of hundred dollars over budget. 67% of those who spent more than they planned have yet to finish paying off their holiday bills. That's pretty challenging, I would say, in this climate for sure. And 24% of respondents say they plan to cut back on their entertainment to pay off their credit card. 23% say they plan to take it out of their living expenses. And 16% said they expect to carry a balance on their credit card for at least two months because of their holiday spending. See, I find that fascinating just because I thought, oh, we're going to scale down. We certainly scaled down at, at my house this year. I would normally have bought presents for a very large extended family, like little things for everybody, and that did not happen. And so it sounds like, though, maybe we spent a little more money on our, you know, kind of closer-knit family and went a little over budget that way. Be curious to know what happened in your house, though. Did you go over budget? I mean, sounds like in BC we weren't that bad. We went a few hundred dollars more than we had planned I mean, Quebec, $1,000 more than they had budgeted. That's a lot. So yeah, let me know how your holiday season spending went. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. When I was a kid, Granville Street was where you went to see movies, either at the Capital Six or the Granville Seven across the street. And of course, both of those options are long gone now. And over the decades, we've debated and talked about reviving and renewing Granville Street. And quite frankly, right now, it needs it. It's been looking pretty bleak during this pandemic. There have been business closures, people unhappy with the kind of dingy storefronts that are there. But could there actually be some hope on the horizon? Could this be the time where we actually do renew and revive 
Gravel Street downtown. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Carm Samal, who's the co-founder and CEO at Daily Hive. Carm, thanks for being here. Hey, morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, this is great to talk about because you were discussing this yesterday online. What brought it to your attention, these new ideas for Granville Street? Uh, You know what? Honestly, I've had these ideas for a while. I just wasn't really active on Twitter for, you know, years. And then I kind of joined back in on the community and realized a lot of people feel the same way. Um, You know, I live only a few blocks away. And, you know, I don't venture out to Granville Street as much as I used to when I was young, but I still look at the street as like an opportunity for the city to be like a, a showcase street. Um, that it just seems like a missed opportunity to me. Right. I think um, it always has, right? For a lot of people, you're like, this is street right downtown. Why is it not kind of vibrant and have all this stuff going on? But tell me about some of the plans that you've been reading about. So, the, yeah, the biggest plan, I mean, obviously there's a, the new Cineplex rec room, which is going on in the 800 block. Um, which was the old um, theater um, that's been de- like in disrepair for so long. Uh, it's finally getting some action and it's going to be renovated and it should be done in about a year or so. So that I think is a great stimulus for that, that one block. Um, but across the street and there's a, a, a t- office tower proposal, which not only, you know, it looks beautiful, but like, I mean, I guess it looks as debatable, but uh, it, it looks like it's a decent chunk of, um, uh, size and it's going to add a lot of bodies I think during the daytime which Granville sorely needs and it's also going to help um, you know expand some of the performance space in the Commodore and the Queen uh, the Queen uh, the Queen Elizabeth was Orpheum yeah the Orpheum yeah the Orpheum and I think that to me I just think it's a catalyst that when I think city just needs to let the developers bring it back to life as long as we can you know kind of have some sort of plan like you can't you know get rid of the Commodore you can't get rid of the you know, some of these um, heritage um, buildings. I think there's a way and a path forward for that, but I just, I don't know if the city has a plan for Granville at all. I mean, I I think they clearly don't. If you see, they just kind of let it kind of fall apart. So what kind of response have you been getting since you started talking about this on social media? People have been like saying, yeah, a lot of them are for it. I think some are against it because they don't want the buses to, you know, like, I, some of my ideas were like to shut it down to buses and make it into like a public plaza from like West Georgia all the way up to like maybe even like Drake Street, um, which it seems kind of ludicrous, I guess. But I think it's the perfect place for, you know, people to congregate and have fun day and night. Um, and a lot of people are agreeing with me. And, and, and I think it's just pent up frustration from, uh, you know, city council and staff kind of just ignoring it. Um I love the part where you said, yeah, this would be good too, but we can't have that. That might be too much fun. <laughs> no, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I'm born and raised in Vancouver, and I, I think that the No Fun moniker stands for a certain segment of, uh, and it's a lot of, like, if you ask kids in the 20s, is Vancouver a fun city? And a lot of them would say no. Um, and it's because we have these bureaucratic, you know, rules and, like, liquor license laws that make no sense and this weird... I don't, know, it's, it, I don't know what it is. I, I just feel like it's run by a bunch of old people and they're happy with it being a sleepy town. But it's downtown and I think we need to liven up certain parts of it. And the entertainment district should be the entertainment district. Okay, so if this is being um, entertained right now at City Hall, like, are, are you going to get involved? Are you going to say to people, hey, listen, you've got to speak up here? Yeah, I mean, I, we've been trying to, um, you know, at least through our platform, on Daily Hive, we're, we're, we're writing about this, so getting people talking, and I think getting people talking is the first thing, you know, 
Um, a lot of it, I know it's a pandemic and everybody's talking about that and it kind of buries the news every day. But I think coming out of that, we have to look at what does Vancouver look like and how do we get people to, you know, enjoy the city again. And the nature is beautiful and all that, but there's other things that people want to do and they don't want to go on hikes and walk up the seawall all the time. So what else can we give people? And I think Granville Street is a perfect opportunity for all the teenagers and like the 20-year-olds that they just want a place to party and we should give them a place to party. But I think, you know, people my age and older that are 40 plus can also enjoy it, you know, for, you know, if we create the right atmosphere for it. Well, we'll see what happens. Karm, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Oh, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm not getting any information straight from like Fraser Health. I've been getting it through my teachers and through my friends. And that's kind of just very weird and uncomfortable for me to not get it directly from the source. Now, that's a student from Garibaldi Secondary School in Maple Ridge. She was speaking with our Jill Bennett yesterday afternoon. So we're still waiting to learn whether a possible COVID-19 variant exposure at Garibaldi Secondary has resulted in any new cases. Obviously, that would be something that parents, teachers and students are very concerned about. So joining us now to talk about the concerns that she's been hearing is the BC School Trustees Association President, Stephanie Higginson. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me this morning. This must be a a big worry right now. Well, of course... You know, I think in general, the variants making their way into British Columbia is a is a worry for everyone. You know, one of the things that we know from experience, a lot of experience that we have had running the schools uh, across this province since September, is that the safety plans in place are robust and very effective. Schools have been, you know, not drivers of COVID transmission in uh, in this province, and they are, you know, they are very very low risk environments, and so. That's, you know, that is reassuring information. And what we are looking at right now is we are making sure the provincial health office has been monitoring very closely the variants since they started appearing in British Columbia. Our ability in BC to do genome testing on, uh, you know, I'm getting into medical terms I don't know very much about, but we're very, um, they're doing genome testing on all of the school-age children to make sure that the variants haven't been up in the schools. So we have this ability in BC that's sort of at the forefront of this science in the world, and, and they've been watching the variant very closely whenever it's appeared, and and making sure that uh, they're doing their best to contain it. And so, you know, what I was really reassured about was the ability for Fraser Health to respond rapidly and introduce, um, you know, a much more comprehensive contract tracing process very, very quickly when there was this concern raised. So, you know, we continue to operate schools safely, and we are in the process um, with all that work with provincial health, watching the variants of updating the health and safety guidelines for the schools to make sure that they could respond to the increased risk that this may bring into the schools. Right. Is there enough information, though, Stephanie, in the school environment? Like we heard from that student there. I think students feel a lot of anxiety about this, too. Yes, I, I would imagine that they do. Um, and is there enough in, information? I think that's a really tricky question in this day and age to um, to answer. And I think that what I've heard from provincial health is that they have a lot of factors that they have to balance. And, you know, no sooner would I expect to tell provincial health how to do their job than I would want them coming in and telling me how to actually run my school districts. So I think we need to uh, look at our success overall in BC at uh, at, at uh, you know, how we've 
how we've done combating this virus and the spread in the province and, and take some solace from that. Information and access to information these days, is uh, it's hard to get in front of. And when we have people who receive their COVID positive tests and are immediately um, putting it on social media, it's ho- you can't get in front of that. And you can't get in front of the spread of social media. So what, we, what, what they're doing is trying their best and they're acting very quickly. I mean, this, this particular uh, instance of COVID, the student was, you know, my understanding, I don't know if it's a student or a staff, we don't really know these things, uh, but the person was in the school January 18th and 19th and on uh, January 21st, there was notification shared, and on January 22nd, contact tracing for the first part was was completed. That's very, very fast. I guess it shows you, though, how much concern there is about these variants, right? Yeah, there is a lot of concern about the variants in general in society, and I understand that that would be concerning for students. Uh, The, you know, what I hope is that people take a little bit of comfort from how quickly uh, not only the first amount of contact tracing was was uh, was completed for this this particular case, but then how quickly the response was put into place upon learning that this 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 person um, I've got the notice the letters in front of me was I don't know the exact wording but a close contact of someone in community or something like that who had the, the variant. And they very quickly, you know, introduced a much more comprehensive and robust contact tracing system and they spread, they cast the net much wider and it was very, very, very fast. Right. And so they are able to adapt very quickly when necessary. And, and I think we saw that, um, that this is the first time that this has happened in the schools and their, their response time was very, very quick. So what I hope people can take comfort in is, well, it's an unknown. It's the first time it's happened. So everybody kind of says, how are they going to respond? They responded quickly. They cast the net very wide and they, they put all the processes in place necessary to ensure that the folks who may have come in contact uh, are tested quickly right. and that they have all the information they need to make good decisions. All right, Stephanie, thank you for your time on that this morning. You're welcome, Simi. Have a great day. That's Stephanie Higginson, president of the BC School Trustees Association, talking about the response to this possible COVID-19 variant exposure at a high school in Maple Ridge that is causing so much concern.